Imagine a football platform where the world's best writers give you the real story about what's going on at United. Imagine no pop-up ads, no clickbait headlines and no ridiculous rumours to be let down by anymore. You don't have to imagine anymore. Meet The Athletic. No ads, no nonsense, just football. Visit theathletic.co.uk forward slash United We Stand to start your 30-day free trial and get 50% off your annual subscription. The Athletic, the new home of football. Welcome to the latest United We Stand podcast. I'm Andy Mitten and I'm delighted to be joined by today's special guest, former Manchester United player Luke Chadwick. Luke played, started 18 matches and played in another 21 games when he, he came off the bench for Manchester United. Made his debut at Villa away. I was there, 99 in a League Cup game. And I'd like to welcome you, Luke, and thank you for joining us. No worries, Andy. Thanks for, thanks for having me. And who else made the debut that night? Because I know of at least one more player. Yeah, I, I, John Greening played. I'm not sure if it was John O's debut or not. Dave Healy, I think I'm pretty sure it was Dave's debut that night. And there's another one. There's, he's, he's a current manager who's doing very well. And that was his first game. And he said, uh, he came on and he looked and he's playing and he looked at the scoreboard and he saw his name on it. <laughs> this isn't a dream. I'm actually playing for Man United here. Would that have been Richie Wellens? It's Richie. Yeah. Oh, he's a fantastic player. I can't. I don't remember that. It's same so long ago now. I remember playing with Rick quite a lot in the youth teams, but I think that night was probably quite a blur for all of us. Making it, it was an in, incredible feeling to to actually do what you went up there to do and actually play in a first team game. The result weren't what we wanted, but I think I was on cloud nine despite the result of actually playing for the club. Richie was a very good footballer, technically. He will be the first to admit, and, and has done, that he was a bit of a, quote, knobhead when he was younger and didn't always help himself. But I think he matured to being an exceptionally good footballer. Not not top, top level, but, you know, Leicester City paid over a million pounds for him. And he's a really good manager. He let me into his um, dressing room a couple of months before the lockdown in a place not too far from you, Colchester, and his Swindon team were there, they were top of the league, and I just thought, and I've always thought this about him, he's got something, he's going places, I wouldn't be surprised if he became a top manager. Yeah, he's got an incredible character, I, to be honest with you, I never saw him as a manager growing up, but like you say, he had a fantastic career, I remember at the time when we were kids, we played in the Young England team together, and it was him and Steven Gerrard in the centre of midfield, and they were both like incredible young players at the age. They never worked out for Rich at Man United, but he had a brilliant career and, like you say, top, top player. And what are you doing now, Luke? What's, what's, what are you doing now in life? Where are you living? How are you making a living? So I'm back home, back in Cambridge where I grew up, little village in South Cambridge. I um, slipped into coaching when my f- career came to an end and now I'm sort of part of an organisation called the Football Fun Factory and it's just, as the name suggests, fun experiences for children between 2 and 12. So we're looking to grow that nationwide and hopefully worldwide eventually. So really excited about that. It's a real new thing, but hopefully we can really move it forward in the coming months. What is it? So it's, um, it's programmes run for 2 to 12-year-olds. So it's something completely different than I've ever done before in my life. But it's all about... It's not about developing footballers to play in academies or professional players. It's all about kids just coming and their first experience of football being fun, using football as a vehicle really to develop positive life skills like sportsmanship, communication, hard work, that sort of thing. So it's a real 
rewarding role and something that I am really enjoying being part of and trying to grow. And then how do you look back on your football career? It's now, it's 20 years since you were playing at Manchester United. That was the first professional club. And I know after United, you went on loan, you went to, to Antwerp, you were at Reading, you were at Burnley, you're at West Ham, you're at Stoke. I've got about half an hour to read through your <laughs> former clubs there. Uh, Norwich, Milton Keynes and Cambridge United and then, and then so on. But was it pretty daunting to move from a village in Cambridgeshire to Manchester as a, as a young kid, how were you spotted? What 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 was the the route for you to becoming uh, a young player at United? So I, was pro I played for Arsenal as an under thirteen player, and then I started playing for the schools team, Cambridge Schools, every Saturday, and that's where I got scouted for for Man United and got invited up to go for a trial in the school holidays to go up for a week, and there'd probably be about fourteen, fifteen of talented young lads from all over the United Kingdom that would go together and sort of trial for a place in the team. So it was um, it was really daunting. And I was a real quiet, shy lad who, when I didn't even like going to Arsenal that much of the training, so I was just happy playing with my mates. But it was such an incredible opportunity to go up to Manchester. And the second I got up there, even as a quiet, shy lad, I just felt part of it straight away. I think that was the draw of the club. You just felt the environment, the way you were treated, they made you feel so important. It was um, an amazing experience to go up there the first time. And off the back of that, I signed and used to go up of a weekend until I finished school. And then when I finished school, I moved up into Diggs in Littleton Road, not far from the cliff, and had two years staying there before really moving on and going on loan to Belgium and then coming back to the first team. So it was... It was massively daunting. I think it, the fact that I was made to feel so welcome immediately and just felt part of the club immediately made me feel at ease. There were still some tough times as a 16-year-old. I remember phoning home from my digs a couple of times, really homesick in tears, saying I wanted to go home. But once I got through that original first month or so, I absolutely loved it. And it was, there was no better place to be as a young player than at, at Manchester United. It's a bit of a difference, leafy South Cambridgeshire to Littleton Road, Salford. Yeah, you couldn't, it couldn't be much different at all. But what you do notice in terms of, the, even the first time I went up to Manchester, not just the, the football club, it just seems a friendly place, like round Cambridge in the city, in London, that sort of thing. No one really speaks to you, but in Manchester, it did seem like such a, a friendly place and you, you do sort of feel part of it from the moment you get up there, really. And who were your contemporaries? Which youth team lads were you, were you playing with at the time? So the year above me would have been Dave Ely, Richie Wellens, Wes Brown. They were the ones that probably had a good careers in the game. Then in my age, there was Michael Stewart, who played a few games, Paul Rachubka, who had a career. And the, the top one would have been Shazy, John O'Shea, who come over probably a little bit later when we started our apprenticeship, but was certainly a class act from the second he walked through the door. And Bojan, Bojan Jordic, was he your age group? Yeah, so Bojan, Danny Webber, Jimmy Davis, God rest his soul, they were all the three lads that done really well that were the year below me. So when I was a second year, I would have played the, in the same youth team as them boys. And then you went to Royal Antwerp on loan. They, for, they were United, they were a feeder club uh, in effect where United had the idea in the late, in the late 90s that they could get players into Belgium 
easier if they were from outside the EU, but also to toughen lads up going there. And I remember, I remember going over there a few times. I went to see Kirk Hilton there and got to know the secretary, Paul Bistio. And he was the secretary there for like 20 years. He emailed me last week. He's not the secretary of Royal Antwerp anymore, but he still follows Manchester United. Um, he, he read about you in the media recently and he had very nice things to say about you. What was your memory of going to Antwerp like? Because they're quite a successful team now, but they were a second division team playing in a 100-year-old ground when I went there. It was really ramshackle and yet it was a brilliant city. I, was, I absolutely loved it. I, I was sort of not in and around the first team at the time, so I jumped at the chance to go to go out to Antwerp, and they took me out there to watch a game. Kirk, I was out there with Kirk and, and Georgie Clegg. They were the two lads that were out there that, when I went out, and I watched the game, and it, it blew my mind. It was the atmosphere. There was all sort of the smoke bombs in the crowd. The atmosphere was electric, and I just couldn't wait to get started. So I scored on my debut, and the fans took to me immediately after that. They were singing my name as a, as a 19-year-old boy. It was absolutely amazing and as well as that of like allude to there it was um, an incredible city for three young lads away from home to to have a bit of fun off the pitch and no one really knew who we were it was like being invisible at times so I did that I loved my time out in Belgium and I was actually gutted when Man United called me back so I assumed I was just going back to be part of the reserve team squad again but when I come back I was in and around the first team but it was um an amazing experience. You mentioned Paul there. He actually um, emailed me last week as well, I think, off the back of being in the papers for a few days. So it was great to hear from him. And it's definitely something I'll, somewhere I'd love to take my kids back to and watch a game. They're, do, they're doing really well now as well, by the sound of it. Well, Paul emailed me for Danny Taylor, who wrote the article with you for The Athletic, for Danny's contact. So I think that's how he's got back in touch with you. But he was a real club man and he took me out a few times there as did Kirk, Kirk's now in Dubai, he's coaching out there George Clegg, someone tell us where George Clegg is now, he was living in Bury. George you owe me a pint from when I came to see you in Antwerp when you took me out far too late for a young professional footballer but <laughs> I would lo love to hear from you and did you ever feel that you could make it at Manchester United were you thinking I'm going to be making it here under Ferguson, or was you always thinking, I'm going to be as good as I can and then move on elsewhere and be a footballer? Yeah, I, I can't say I ever... I always, just not in an arrogant way, I always assumed I would be a footballer, a professional footballer. Even when I was off to, offered a scholarship and moved up to Manchester as, at 16 years old, I couldn't really envision myself in that first team because they were so good. Even when I come back from... Antwerp and I was training with a first team I didn't probably see myself as a first team player it just seemed so surreal it was like uh, pinching yourself every day that you were charging around with these world-class players and being part of it so I can't say I ever really thought that I'd be a Manchester United player or like one of the great players or someone like Ryan Giggs or Paul Scholes, Nicky Butt, the lads that were there for, for years on end. Some readers' questions, and some of them are, are light-hearted, um, and some of them are very straight. Who were the outstanding players in your age group? So in my age group, the outstanding player in my age group would have been John O'Shea. Okay. I probably I don't like uh, blowing my own trumpet, but before he arrived, I think <laughs> I was the outstanding player, and I could get past. I was really fast, and I could just run past everyone. 
And then when Shazy came in, I just couldn't get past him. And I thought, this guy is quite a special player. Obviously, Wes, you could see he was a, a class act from the second you go in the door. He just reads the game so well. Always had a real good connection with Richie Wellens because of his ability to find a pass. And I could make runs in behind from the wide areas and he'd pick me up, pick me out. Michael Stewart had great technique. He was an outstanding player for his age. They were probably the the main one. Dave Healy, I can't forget him. His his finishing was absolutely ridiculous. The what, way that he. What was Fergie like with you? Richie was petrified of him, especially when he picked him up outside the cliff one day and offered him a lift into Manchester in his Mercedes. And Richie got in and saw white carpets in the back of his Mercedes. And Richie had mud on his shoes, and he didn't want to dirty the carpets in Fergie's car. So he kept his feet off the floor. And even though he was a footballer, he said after 10 or 15 minutes, he was in absolute agony. But such was his respect, stroke, fear for the man, he didn't dare touch the floor. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised Richie was scared of him because Richie himself was probably up to a bit of mischief at the time. But, um, yeah, I think there was always that fear factor. At the same time, it was that ultimate respect for someone. There was no... You'd do everything you could just to get a well done off the gap, the manager, if he said well done, it was the best feeling in the world. You'd make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. At the same time, if he was having a pop at you, obviously it was scary. They talk about the hairdryer treatment. It, it'd be really scary. But I think the worst feeling in the world was you'd let him down because you wanted to do so well for him. He just had a way of bringing everyone together. That I'm sure you all know as well as me. He just brought everyone in the whole club was pulling in the same direction and that's where the success come from. I think it was his genius of building relationships with every single person, whether it be the kit man or the dinner ladies. Everyone wanted to do the best they could for that man. Did you ever get a rollicking off him? I got a couple. I got one where I think I went out on a Christmas do when we, I was meant to be planning a reserve game a couple of days later. And then just my luck, it all kicked off. There was some sort of fight or something. It was in all the papers. And he, I, was, I was obviously the least of his worries because <laughs> the big stars were there as well. But he just sort of saw me. I was trying to sneak past him in the corridor. And he was like, and as for you, you'll find two weeks' wages. So <laughs> I remember at the time there at Carrington, the, the staff used to serve the lads a Christmas dinner. It was something that was done every year. And he, he sort of was serving food to us. And he had a bowl, a couple of bowls of soup. And he saw me and slammed it down on the table and was like, that's the most expensive bowl of soup you'll ever eat. So it was... Um, and then the other time, he wanted me to go on loan to Cardiff. But I wanted to go to Reading. So I ended up just going to Reading and got to Alan Pardew's office and then... But Alan said, oh, Alex, Alex, he got a message saying Alex Ferguson wanted to speak to him. And I could hear Sir Alex on the phone to Alan Pardew and he was just shouting at him. And he was saying, you need to send him back to Manchester or we ain't going to pay him. So he ended up, I ended up signing for Reading but giving up half my money because I was so scared to go back and see the gaffer again. So it, I thought I'd have three months at Reading until he calmed down. And unfortunately, when I went back, he was fine with me. But he was... Um, an incredible man, but like I say, he, he was the one person that you wouldn't want to let down at all. Some left-field questions here. Have you ever done that punting on the River Camp? It's harder than it looks, isn't it? That's from Remo, and he's sort of showing off a little bit because he's basically showing that he's been punting on the River Camp. 
which is, I presume, the river that runs through Cambridge. Yeah, yeah, so it's lovely in the summer. I have been punting on the River Cam a couple of times. Once I'd done the punting myself, and like, like he says, it is a, a tough job. Another time we got in a, a chauffeur-driven punt, as it were. We thought it was <laughs> just going to be here, thought it was just going to be me, the missus and the kids, but then other people started getting in as well, and we ended up being on it about four hours where we were told the whole history of every university on the riverside in Cambridge. So it was a, a regretful situation, although I'm sure it was very interesting. It weren't, it weren't something I'm that into, really. <laughs> the next question is, do you really hate Peterborough? Yeah, I do. I'm a massive Cambridge United fan, and you're sort of brought up with... Don't get me wrong, it's not a huge rivalry. It's probably not as big as a Man United-Man City game, but in the, in the Cambridge year... You're either Cape. Well, I say that. If you're if you're a Cambridge fan, you dislike Peterborough a lot. So yeah, I do. I don't like using the word hate, but I do dislike Peterborough United. <laughs> so you grew up as a as a Cambridge fan. Would that be John Beck and the rise up to the the second division and punting the ball into the the corner and asking his forwards to hold it up? Yeah, that would have been them days when I first started. It was. Chris Turner in charge when I was really young and the club weren't doing particularly well. And then as top, when I really started getting into it, Becky was in charge and it was, um, it was not great football, but I don't think you notice that as a nine, ten-year-old boy. You just see the excitement of the ball going in the box all the time. Big Dion getting his head on it. John Taylor scoring a load of goals. And I absolutely fell in love with a game of football by watching that team play as they climbed the climbed up the leagues the leagues so the next question ties in slightly with that if you could choose between scoring the goal that got Cambridge United into the Premier League or scoring the goal that wins the Premier League for Manchester United which would you choose yeah and it this I've, I don't know if when I was like I signed for Cambridge and I spoke about it meaning so much the most because I supported the club and it is no disrespect to Manchester United whatsoever but I'm sure football fans will agree if the club that you support the club you love to do that for me to do that for Cambridge is what I'd choose out the two options but that is not being disrespectful in any way shape or form to Manchester United that gave me so much as a young person and you did score for Manchester United you scored at Leeds away which is a huge game what was that like it was absolute madness. I remember I came on at half-time because I think um, Nicky Buck got injured and I went on and I played wide left and I remember coming on, I was absolute, I was like a little bit scared but excited at the same time. I was playing against Danny Mills. He was at right back and I thought if I ran at him, he was a very good player but I thought I could get the better of him so I was really excited and I think it was Scalzi slid Ollie in and Ollie's had a shot and it weren't a great shot for his standards whatsoever and it was sort of I thought Nigel Martin who was a great goalkeeper and save I remember it like it was yesterday and he just dropped it and my whole eyes just lit up and I thought even I can't miss this I was about four yards out and I tapped it in and I ran off like we just won the World Cup it was um, an amazing feeling like you say to score in, in what is such an important game for the club I was just waiting the rest of the game I was just hoping and praying that Leeds wouldn't score, so I would have all the headlines the next day. But I think Baduka scored towards the end and it ended up 1-1. But what an amazing feeling that was to score at Ellen Road. What were your teammates like with you? Who were the big personalities? Was Roy Keane the absolute main man? Who did you watch in training and think, 
wow, I cannot get to this level. I think, like, probably the, the majority of them, really, like, the, the best player would have been Paul Scholes in terms of he was just a genius. He had eyes in the back of his head like the, he could spin his head all the way around. He just knew where everyone was and he was just a step ahead of everyone else, it seemed. I used to obviously be out on the wide area side of the opportunity to watch Beckham and Giggs, who were two massive heroes of mine. I think Roy Keane was the ultimate leader, really. He was... I remember thinking the first couple of days when I come back from Belgium and I was training, I thought, bloody hell. Like, when he was sort of... He'd call you the most terrible things and say... Like, tell you in no uncertain terms. But at the same time, off the pitch, he was an amazing man who really looked after the whole squad. But the young players, there was times when I couldn't drive where he'd pick me up from a flat and go out his way to get me to train and that sort of thing. So he was the ultimate captain. We used to have a little joke, I think, the young lads that we used to really hope we weren't on his team in the small-sided games, because if you were, you knew if you lost, you was in for a mouthful come the end of it. But he was an amazing captain of that, that squad at the time. And you saw big chunks of the world at a young age with Manchester United. What was it like going on them European trips, even if you didn't play in all the, the journeys that you went on or the pre-season tours where you've seen the, the hysteria which surrounded Manchester United, who were the best team in the world. You were there at a time when Manchester United were the, the English, European and world champions. Yeah, you don't... I don't think you... Because you're such a young person, I'm not sure you realise the real magnitude of it. Or I remember... I don't know where it was. I don't know if it's Sturmgratz away or something like that. And it was one of my first trips and the lads were saying, if you... Um, I won't talk about the figures, but if you step on the pitch, you get like a huge bonus. And I weren't earning, obviously, that much in comparison to the other lads. And I remember the gaffer told me to get warmed up and I went on for about 30 seconds and it was like all my Christmases come at once. Really. It was <laughs> an incredible feeling. I remember we went to Singapore, I think it was, and it was my first trip away. So all the lads saying, oh, we have a night out and you'll have to do a speech and that. So I think we was in the, the Raffles Hotel and I was knocking back Singapore slings to make sure that I sort of calmed the old nerves before I spoke in front of them. But I remember um, knocking a few of them back and then doing a speech. And then we was in a, a nightclub in a VIP area and I didn't, like, I weren't used to anything like this. So I was sort of went for a wander on my own. I ended up on sort of dancing around at the bottom with all the local people. And the next thing I know, I've, I remember a security guard just dragging me out and sort of chucking me back into the VIP area. I didn't have a clue what was going on. It was certainly a different world, but some absolutely incredible experiences, that's for sure. What did you do a speech on in the Raffles Hotel in Singapore, having knocked back several Singapore slings? Uh, so I just, it was just sort of to introduce, well, just sort of saying thank you for making me feel so welcome and that sort of thing. It was, um, I don't think it lasted too long, but I got a, the reception was okay. I weren't made to sing a song or anything, so I had to be grateful for small mercies, I think. And you mentioned Gratz, that was in 99. Were there any other trips where you're travelling to somewhere like La Coruña and just see any of the cities or is it just that life of of airport, bus, hotel, training? Did you feel that you, you saw much of the places that you visited? Not really. I do remember you mentioned Deportivo, La Coruña. I went, went there once and I watched Spanish football a lot and I just, it was such a beautiful place. We went for a walk along the, um, along the seafront and the stadium was right next to it. But a lot of the time it was just ho like to the hotel then we went to the stadium 
to train them back to the hotel and the game the next day. I remember the Bayern Munich game, the quarter-final, when I come on for the last 10 minutes or so. I remember sitting in the pre-match dinner before that and Mick Hucknell, Simply Red, was there. And, like, my mum was a massive fan of his growing up and I was just sort of sat in the same room eating my dinner at the same time as him. It just, it, the whole season was so surreal just being around these, like, superstars and what the enormity of actually playing for Manchester United. So Bayern, was that the game away when Carl Power, the man, jumped on the pitch for the team photo? I think it was, yeah. I was on the bench at the time, but I didn't. I only realised what had happened when it was in all the papers. I didn't even notice it at the time, but I'm pretty sure that was the game where that, when the guy came on the pitch and slipped into the photo. And then the pre-seasons where you're just seeing hundreds, if not thousands of people coming to training come into the team hotel. It's Beatlemania. It certainly oh, yeah. was then. It was crazy. I remember um, when we, I think we went to Singapore, Thailand and Malaysia. And I remember like we, they were taking us to a shopping centre or something. And the, like the crowd, it was like something off a movie where pop stars are going through the, the hotel or whatever. And there was thousands of people just like screaming and that sort of thing. It was... It was um, I certainly weren't used to it, that's for sure. Did you get any individual fans? Because I can remember, of course there were the big stars, but I can remember being in Singapore and seeing Terry Cook shirts and people who were thinking, I'm going to go a bit left field here. I'm going to go for someone who isn't the main man and then I've got a better chance of meeting that person. Did you get much fan mail? Yes, yeah, like an incredible amount. It was like, at the club it come, but like you say, I seem to have a fair few fans out in the Far East. Like, I remember people, like, just throwing shirts with my name on the back and that sort of thing. And that, like, probably freaked me out even more And I'm with the likes of David Beckham and Ryan Giggs and there's these people with Chadwick, with the, the Chadwick name on the back of their shirts. But it was, um, it was certainly something that I never envisaged happening, but obviously grateful to have gone through and had them experience because it is, it is mind-blowing, really. And then recently you're back on in the media. How did that story come about? How did it work for you? I think you came out of it very well. Was it something that just happened naturally? Journalists got in touch with you. I've followed you on Twitter for a while and um, seen seen some of your tweets. Yeah, it was it was a, like a real strange one, really. I've never really been involved in social media, but since setting up the new organisation that I'm involved in, it was sort of a way of sort of growing our footprint and I've the stuff that put on Twitter is sort of a platform where we try and show our own personality and all I'd ever put on there was some pretty crappy banter really that didn't get much um, coverage. I didn't wanted, obviously the situation we're all in with the lockdown, it was just trying to add a bit of value to it but so I spoke about obviously the way that people spoke about my appearance as a player coming through at United, now that affected me negatively. And the best way to deal with that, what I should have done at the time, was was talk about it more. So that was the value I was trying to add. And it just sort of took off from there. And it got so many likes or whatever. And then people from the press got in touch. And I think probably the point I was trying to make got lost a little bit when it was just speaking about the TV show. They think it's all over. I didn't like I hold no grudge to anyone that done it, and I think it maybe went more that way. The, or the only point I was trying to make was 
if you're feeling down in this lockdown, I'm sure everyone's mental health fluctuating. The best way to deal with that is talking about it and trying to raise that awareness. Just me saying that, I understand that's not going to make millions of people cut start talking, but the more people that can raise the awareness that it's not a sign of weakness to talk about your feelings, it's a sign of you wanting to get better and improve your mental health. Was That was a point I was trying to make, and it probably... Um, it's probably blown over now and I'm sort of crawled back behind me, um, me a stone and quite happy with a quiet life, to be honest with you. There was a huge reaction to it. Did you get reaction from many players or from any young players who felt that what you said could help them? Yeah, I think the, the best thing for me, obviously there was some positive press and that sort of thing, whatever, but the, the most rewarding thing for me and probably the best feeling I've ever had, even on a football pitch, was people getting in contact with me, messages saying that what I've said sort of made them feel a bit, little bit better and they want to talk about it, not as embarrassed about it anymore because I spoke about that and it is quite an embarrassing thing, like people talking about your appearance and that. So that was the most rewarding and humbling thing to come out of it for me is that it has helped people. If it had helped one person, then it was more than worthwhile to talk about a period in my life that I found quite challenging and affected me quite negatively. Times have changed, haven't they? Do you think that it would happen now on mainstream TV, something like that, or would it be called out as being bullying? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any way in the world that that would be allowed to happen on a regular basis on TV, but I think obviously the massive challenge now is social media where people have got an easy opportunity to, to say terrible things to people. So I think that's... The next challenge is, I think we have moved forward in the, in the world, as it were. I don't think them sort of things are accepted, but there is the odd individual still out there that look to make people's lives hard by the things they say to them on social media. So I think that's the next challenge ahead of us. In some of the abuse on social media, specifically Twitter, and I'm not about towards you, but in, in general, it's, it's far more pernicious than anything I've ever seen on, on television. It's, it's just people who are, who are anonymous. There's a lot of angry, very frustrated people. Sometimes with a reason, especially this week with what we're seeing in the United States. But there's some awful stuff on there as well, which is nothing to do with principle. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think I saw an awful story a couple of weeks ago where Ian Wright was getting racially abused yeah. by someone on a, a social media platform. And I... Now, I'm sure there must be more that can be done to stop this happening because, like you say, it's, it's a lot worse than gets said on TV and it seems so much easier for people to aim their abuse at individuals so easily. And you say you were just doing a little bit of banter. Well, two things stuck out from the tweets you were putting out. One was you were reading poetry as if you understood poetry. Are you into poetry? I'm into that poem, Roger Kipling If. I've... I've heard it while I was at school and I'd sort of memorised it from there. So I do try and be quite creative. I wrote a poem that I've got on Twitter. I don't think it's particularly good, but it does rhyme. I will stick to that story. So it has to be a poem. But I, am, I do like reading. I'm into different things. But that Rodyard Kipling poem, if that I'm doing the keepy-up is to on one of the posts, it does mean a lot to me, them words. I'd never heard of it and felt embarrassed that I hadn't and listened to you talking it's incredible so it's a beautiful poem yeah yeah it is i think if you listen to it it is um i said i 
sort of forgot about it, then it came back up. I don't know if you've seen the movie on Mike, Biss Mike Bassett, the England manager one, and he's got a, an extract from the poem on his wall, but at the end of it, it's misspelled, and it says, rather than be a man, my son, it says, be a mason, my son. <laughs> <laughs> and the second tweet was uh, you talking about Steven Gerrard saying you know, he was a world-class footballer, and you know, he, he obviously was, I think. If there'd been any player Sir Alex Ferguson could have signed in 2007, it would have been Steven Gerrard. But you felt that you were a squad player, but you still had a, a good career. Is that how you look back at your football career? You had some great moments at the biggest club in the world. I'd assume that you've got... Have you got some medals from your time at Manchester United? Yeah, I got a Premier League medal from the season where... I, the 2000-2001 season where I did have a few games and come on a fair few times. So that's the point of the tweet, I suppose. Someone had said that you've probably got more medals than Gerard, who obviously hasn't got any. Yeah, because I feel like, I don't know, people say that to me so often. I don't know if they're sort of having a pop at me as if to say, even you've won a Premier League trophy that <laughs> Stephen Gerrard ain't, or if it's sort of a compliment to me. So it's, that's what, that was the point of that tweet. That was quite, meant to be quite light-hearted. I think, I'm, I'm proud as punch of my football career. I, like, don't get me wrong, I didn't have a stellar career in terms of a top career at Man United, but I've experienced every sort of level of level in the game from Premier League to the conference to semi-pro to the Champions League. I've played in every sort of competition available. There's been loads of ups, loads of downs, but I've, I haven't really got any regrets in my football career because I think it all is part of the journey that's made me the person that I am today. I think we've all got our own journey. There was injuries where I felt really down, but at the same time, it's given me a chance to reflect on myself. So there's been... I'm proud of my career, and I, I wouldn't change it for the world. Where did you most enjoy playing your football? Where did you feel, I'm the main man in this team? Was it somewhere like MK Dons, where you played most of your games? Or was it at some of the bigger clubs you played at? West Ham, Stoke City, Norwich City. These are, these are all big football clubs. Yeah, I've been fortunate enough to play at brilliant clubs under brilliant managers. I think like they've all had their, their high points and they've all had some low points as well. I think at the time, I love, I think about the time from 16 to 18 in the, as an apprentice at United, they're the best years. I love that. I loved my time in Antwerp, obviously felt like, the main man there as a young player. I'd probably stayed as fit as I did for a long period of time at Milton Keynes. But probably what I'm most proud of is when I was a little kid, I always dreamed of playing for Cambridge United. And throughout my career, I always had in my mind to play for Cambridge. So when my legs were sort of on their way out at Milton Keynes, I, I approached Cambridge myself, took a massive hit, gave up a load of money just to do and live my dream. And it worked out that I played at Wembley and we got promoted back to the football team. I scored a goal up the Newmarket Road end where I used to stand as a teenage boy singing my heart out. And in my last game of professional football, ended up being at Old Trafford for Cambridge United. So it, it was a dream sort of Roy the Rovers stuff to, to end at the, the club that I loved, playing at the club that made me the person I am today and gave me the ability to go away and have a career in professional football. I never knew that was your last game at Old Trafford. No, it weren't planned. It's wow, weren't I never planned, knew that. Wow. Yeah, it's the last game I ever started in professional football. Wow. So 
if you told me that at the time, I'd probably have been pretty pissed off because I would have realised I wouldn't get another game. But looking back at it, back at it now, it's it's an amazing story, really. Well, what's not so amazing, and what might make us get pissed off as well, you're in the, the Newmarket Road end. At least you're undercover. Manchester United played at the Abbey Stadium in 1990. The away end was atrocious. It was flat. It was uncovered, and you had to walk through a meadow which flooded on the way to the away end. You need to never mind romanticising about Cambridge United. I know they've built a new stand now, haven't they? Because yeah, we went yeah, in it for the yeah. FA Cup game. But I, I do think that, that some psychological damage was done to any away fans who ever went to Cambridge United before that new stand was built. And I'm going to start a petition. I think the government needs to recognise how bad that stadium was. But, or do you see it as a beautiful old little lower league club? I, I love the stadium because I'd be disappointed. I think they need to move eventually if they can find somewhere new. But it is. It's so iconic in my eyes, but at the same time, it is the coldest football stadium I've ever been in. It doesn't even matter if it's summer. When you're sat in that main stand at Cambridge United, it is always freezing cold. I don't know, there's something about it. I don't know what it is. Do you keep in touch with any of your former teammates or United teammates? Not, I've sort of never, probably something I've, one of the regrets I've got, when I've moved clubs so many times, I've never really kept in contact with people as much as I should. I know I spoke to, done something for MUTV the other day and spoke to Ben Thornley, Danny Webber, Wes Brown and David Mann. It's the first time I'd spoken to him in about 10, 15 years, but your immediate chemistry is still there straight away. And it was so nice to, to touch base with them and chat with them again. I think it's something in football where you do lose touch with people quite a lot, but you've always got that connection that when you meet up and it is more or less, there's no awkwardness. It's just like old times straight away. And they slaughter each other. I mean, some of the lads you've mentioned there, your Ben Thornleys, your David Mays, they've been on this podcast. We had last year Ben Thornley and Gary Neville decided to jump in on it. And they were Ben was giving Gary abuse for going out with his sister when he was younger. And it was just, <laughs> it was just brilliant because you could tell that they're slaughtering each other, but there was actually a lot of... I wouldn't say love, but respect and endearment there. Do, do you miss that, that crack, people say, that, that dressing room? Is that one thing you miss when, when you're out of it? Because you've done it for most of your adult life. Yeah, definitely. I think there's so much. I, like, I finished probably about five years ago now, four or five years ago, and I'm probably just getting over that. It is mentally, it was so hard because you are in a bubble as a footballer and you're not, I, me anyway, personally, I weren't, prepared for life after football I just think like in your head you think it's going to go on forever and ever and ever but then when it does stop it is a real tough time and there's loads of stuff that you miss from it but I think it's then now ready and prepared to take on the next challenge in life and really move forward in something different really but it is it's certainly a wonderful life but there's more that can be done to prepare yourself for when it does come to an end I think. I'm surprised at you because you're a bright lad and you were unprepared. You'd seen the ups and downs and you're still unprepared. And I see it with some of the lads who are higher up and their career's finished. Maybe they get divorced. Maybe they get depression. And even in this day and age, this is happening. There's a complete lack of preparation, isn't there, for, for when it stops, for when the floodlights fade? Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. And I think it's the main reason I can't speak for anyone else but in my because you don't want to admit it's going to end mm. you think it's going to go on forever I'll get another year I'll get another year so it is well I remember like I could never see myself 
being a coach or anything like that, I used to sort of mess about with my missus and kids saying, when I finish, I'm going to be like Jim Royal off the Royal Family. I just want to sit on my chair, drink a can of beer, watch the telly every day, get fat and do that. And that was the dream. That was the fantasy of what I was going to do. But in reality, it's not a life that you can live. And you've got to understand that although I'm 39 coming on 40, you're still a young man, not in football terms as a football player, but in life in general, there's still a whole new life for me out there to really go and express myself now in a different a different industry and you're enjoying it now i am definitely i feel like it is tough i've had some tough times but i think now i really am really positive about the future probably finally admitted to myself that the phone ain't gonna ring and ollie's probably not gonna be in contact and offer me a last year at man united that's for sure you used to play with ollie didn't you you played first team matches with him he was on the pitch when you made your debut yeah, yeah, he was, um, he, there was, at the time, we were blessed with four incredible strikers with Ollie, Teddy, Yorkie and Coley. So they were four players as a wide man that you could put the ball in a box and more often than not, they'd, um, they'd put it in the net. But Ollie was an incredible finisher, like the, the hard work that he put in in the gym and on the training pitch, just uh, every time a chance come, more often than not, that he'd, he'd certainly stick it away. And they're all allowed back in the gym now. I've just done a, written a piece today because under one of the previous managers, that wasn't encouraged. But Ollie, obviously, with his background as a, as a wrestler, he's got no problem yeah. with gym. So all the players are buzzing because that's a part of football that they enjoy. It's been really nice to talk to you. I would like to wish you well and we'll keep in touch and let's see how your, um, how your new venture goes. And I'm sure it might be of interest to some of the people who are listening to this as well. And thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Andy. It's been great talking to you. So that's it for this podcast. We'll be continuing to do podcasts and football starting again soon. So something to look forward to, although it's far from ideal with games being behind closed doors, but can't help it. Looking forward to watching United play against Tottenham and to seeing the pictures of the players training. Uh, we've still been sending copies out. If anyone's ordered United, we stand. Um, we have had people, in, especially in Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland, who haven't received their mag, which they ordered a couple of weeks ago. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just the postal system. There's delays, and we sent all the mags out at exactly the same time when they were ordered. And some get through very quickly, but because of the current situation, some take a bit longer. So with that in mind, and the fact that most of our outlets are shut so that we can't really sell copies through the newsstand, we're going to put the summer issue back a month, probably to the start of August, but we'll keep you fully informed. It's just difficult when we're sending mags out, and 95% of them are getting there in the post, but 5% that are taking a lot, lot longer, that becomes a real problem for us. And then we hope that by the start of August, more news agents will be open as well, because we don't have any matches to sell the mag at either so if anyone orders we'll, we'll carry on sending the the mags out and thanks to the athletic who sponsored this podcast some brilliant content on there there really is um, the original story about luke was done by danny taylor on the athletic and there's some really good long-form journalism on there so go to the athletic.co.uk forward slash united we stand and there are offers and also i apologize that halfway through this podcast my daughters despite being told to be quiet decided to start dancing to something called TikTok. 
and screaming. Uh, so it was my kids and not Luke's kids. But it's really nice to talk to Luke, and I hope you agree with that. And we'll be back again with the podcast soon. Cheers. Bye-bye.